Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? I invite you to visit my brand new website, writingcoachmarisa.com to learn more about my services and to set up a free 30-minute consultation. I would love to talk with you about your stories. Season 3, Episode 14, Nile of the Nine Hostages, A Story of Sovereignty. Our guest storyteller is Mari Kennedy. Mari is a global gatherer of Celtic women, a yoga, breathwork, and embodiment teacher, and a sovereign women's coach and mentor. Six years ago, she founded the Celtic Wheel, a global online journey of ritual, myth, and practice for women who want to do the sacred work of the feminine. Her work weaves ancient esoteric indigenous wisdom with evolutionary modern science in service to a new, more beautiful world she believes is emerging. Her passion across all her work is in uniting the opposites and playing the polarities of being human. I am so grateful to have Mari with us on the podcast today. As is our way at Network Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore all the ways that it still matters. So, Mari, will you tell us a story? Sure. I would be delighted to tell you the great story of Nile of the Nine Hostages. For though, for though, there was a king in Ireland and his name was Oki. He lived in Tara, the great seat of the High King. He was married to the beautiful, headstrong, raven-haired Mongfin, who was both revered and feared by the people. Together they had four sons, Brian, Aliel, Fergus, Agus Fiacra. In Oki's house lived a slave woman, Karen Kostov, who he had taken as a hostage from the king of the Saxons to ensure his loyalty. Since her arrival, he had also taken her as a lover 
and now showered much of his attention on her. Mungfin, his wife and queen, was wildly jealous of this slave woman who had turned Uki's head and felt deeply threatened by her presence in their lives. Powerless to Uki's love for Karen, Monkfin made the young slave woman's life as difficult as she could, ordering her to work long hours and giving her the most grueling chores in the household. Karen became pregnant, and when Monkfin found this out, she immediately decreed that Karen would single-handedly throw water from the well to supply the whole household of Tara every day without rest. Monkfin, watching her haul the heavy buckets in the overflowing with water up and down the hill, she felt a sweet satisfaction. But even more, she hoped that her demand would ensure that Karen would not carry the child to full term. Karen felt the burning jealousy of the queen with every bucket she filled and carried on her tired shoulders and back. She was afraid of Monkfin and her power over her. But she was young and strong and her body blossomed in pregnancy. And despite the cruelty of the queen and the exhausting work, the child thrived in her womb. One day, Karen, heavy with the child, weighed down with the water, felt her own waters break. And she lay down on the soft earth and gave birth to a baby boy. But terrified of the queen's wrath for her newborn, she did not even dare to touch her beautiful son. Exhausted and in tears, she whispered a prayer of protection over the boy. And then she picked up the buckets and left him there on the grass. A little while later, a seer poet named Torna came across the child at the foot of Tara. As his eyes took in the crying baby, he was shown a vision. In that vision, he saw the boy would one day become the greatest ever king of Ireland. He realised, of course, that nobody would take this child because of their fear of Monfin. So he took the boy far, far away from Tara to raise him in secrecy. He called him Nile and taught him the ways of the world, skills that he would need to become a fine and noble king. And in particular, he taught him the other ways of knowing. When Nile was fully grown and ready in body, mind and soul to take up his destiny, Torna told him the story of his birth, about his mother Karen, the slave woman and his father Uki. Within 24 hours, they were on the road to Tara. And as they approached the great hill, Nile saw his mother bent over in rags, still carrying water all these seasons and years later. He rushed over to her and taking her in his arms, he told her of his destiny to be king. He announced that this was the last drop of water she would ever carry and the last chore that she would ever have to do for the rest of her life. For you are the mother of a future king, he said. And there and then he promised to be her protector. He told her her suffering was over and that her time of thriving was finally here. 
He placed a mantle of the most beautiful purple fabric over her shoulders. And together with Torna, they went to find King Uki. The king was overjoyed to see his son. He welcomed him with open arms and immediately insisted that places would be laid at the table for all three visitors. For Niall, his son, for Karen, Niall's mother, and Torna, his foster father. A furious Monkfin looked on in disbelief. Her whole world now and the destiny of her son were in question. At the first opportunity, she got alone with Uki. She told him it was time to select an heir to the throne, assuming that Brian, their firstborn, would of course be his choice. Now, whilst he agreed it was time to consider the an heir to the throne, Uki would not be forced into choosing between his sons. So instead, he called his wise druid Sithkin for counsel. The druid suggested that the brothers be set a task, the winner of which would become the next king. As the sun rose the following morning, the five sons of Uki gathered at the forge as instructed. And Sithkin told them that their task was to go into the forge and make a weapon each. Whoever produced the best weapon would be the heir to the throne. But when the last of the sons stepped inside the building, Sithkin locked the door and set the forge on fire. It seemed the real test was who would save what from the burning forge. Brian was the first out. He carried a bunch of hammers and Sithkin announced that Brian would be a warrior fighter. Fiacra was next, carrying a barrel of beer and bellows. Sitkin foretold that Fiacra would hold the beauty and the science of the people. Aliel followed next with weapons, and Sitkin pronounced that he would be the defender of the people. Then Fergus fell out with an armful of wood and kindling, to which Sitkin announced that he was impotent and would never have children. Finally, Niall emerged from the flames, carrying the heavy anvil. Sithkin immediately announced Niall heir to the throne and future king. For Niall had chosen wisely because the anvil of the blacksmith held a sacred alchemical power and was the tool that all weapons were forged from. Mungfin refused to accept the verdict and did not allow the judgment to be made public. She went to her sons and she suggested that they create a mock fight among them and ensure that in that fight, Niall would accidentally be killed. When Niall saw his stepbrothers fighting, he instinctively went towards them to make peace. But Thorna stopped him. Let the sons of Uki settle their own disputes, he said. The next day, the five sons decided to go out hunting together in unknown lands. That evening, they lit a fire and cooked the game they had caught. As they finished the meal, they had a ferocious thirst on them, and they realised that they had not brought any water. So Fergus went out first in search of water. And after much wandering, he found a well. As he approached the well to take 
some water, he saw an old woman guarding it. From the top of her head to the earth was as black as coal. Like the tail of a wild horse was the greasy, bristly mane that came through the upper part of her head crown. The great branch of oak would be severed by the sickle of the green teeth that lay in her head. She had a nose crooked and hollow. She had a middle spotted with diseased pustules and shins distorted and awry. Her ankles were thick, her shoulder blades were broad, her knees were big and her nails were green. Loathsome was the hag's appearance. Filled with horror at the sight of her, Fergus demanded water. I will give you water if you kiss me, she said. Revolted by the very thought of that, Fergus fled back to his brothers, telling them there was no water to be found and never mentioning the loathsome crone. One by one, each of the brothers left in search of water. Each encountered the crone at the well and each arrived back without water. Ali Alambrian had refused her request for a kiss. Fiacra reluctantly kissed her on the cheek, and while she did not grant him water, she did tell him that two of her descendants would become kings. Finally, Niall went looking for water and came upon the well. Seeing the crone, he, like the others, demanded that she give him water. I will give you water if you kiss me, she repeated. I will not only kiss you, but I will lie with you, was Niall's response. And there and then he took the kalyak in his arms and lay with her. And if he did, she transformed into the most beautiful, ravishing young maiden he had ever seen. Dressed in purple with a silver brooch, she had fingers long and slender, shiny pearly teeth and lips as red as the rowan berries. Who are you? asked Nile. I am Flahas. I am the sovereignty of Aerith. She replied, and then she said, O king of Tara, I am the sovereignty, and I will tell thee of its great goodness. And because you have seen me loathsome, bestial at first, and beautiful at last, so it is with sovereignty, for seldom it is gained without battles and conflicts, but at last to anyone it is beautiful and goodly. Theirs was a powerful, juicy and sacred union, and for some time they lay together by the well. As Niall got ready to leave, the maiden, Flahas, handed him the precious water and warned him. Do not give a drop to your brothers until they have promised their loyalty to you as king and renounced any claim to the throne. Niall returned to the brothers who were almost dead with the thirst. Reluctantly, they each agreed to swear allegiance to him as king in exchange for the life-giving water. On returning to Tara, Niall placed his weapons, hands span above the rest on the wall, 
and he sat at the head of the table. His brothers told Uki and Mongfen that they had sworn their allegiance to Nile now, and Mongfen could do nothing to change that. When Uki died, Nile became king. Inspired by his mother's life as a hostage slave, he took nine hostages to ensure loyalty and harmony in the land. He took the hostages from each province of Ireland, Leinster, Munster, Connacht and Ulster, and from the countries close by, Britain and Scotland. Hence, he became known as Nile of the Nine Hostages. His reign as king was bountiful and fruitful, and for 26 generations after him, all of the kings of Ireland descended from Nile. Oh, Mari, thank you for that story. It's so foundational to so much of Irish mythology and Irish history and sovereignty. And it feels kind of remarkable we're landing on it on the end of the third season of the podcast, but also this really beautiful moment of beginnings and endings blending together. Thank you for the gift of that story. Oh, you're so welcome. I love it so much. It fills me up when I read it. Every time I read it or speak it or retell it, I I just love it. I love what it offers us, you know. Mm, Yeah. There's so many directions to take the story, but why don't we begin with the love? Like what, start with the love of it. Start with what inspires you most, what speaks to you most. Where's the love in this story for you? Oh, I just, oh, there's so many, as you say, so many directions, but from the love, let me like feel into that. Where does that love come? It's like a diamond in the the whole mythology that I look at so many different angles and little all the different sides of the diamond and you can see so much in it I mean of course it's the tales of the beautiful marriage of the king to the goddess and that basis of sovereignty which when I discovered it in my own indigenous tradition was just such a moment of profundity for me you know and that king goddess that I now live as feminine, masculine, and my relationship and my learning around that and how I learned to live in a very different way, knowing those forces, Mm. how to mediate those forces in my life. But to hear it in our myths that are so ancient and rewritten, but there's still that beautiful gold is still there of what is sovereignty and how important sovereignty is and how connected it is to the sacred marriage of the king and the goddess in this situation or in this myth, as I would work with it, it's the inner marriage of my inner feminine and then inner masculine. So that's where the love springs from, as well as the rich images and the, it speaks so much of where we've landed as a society and and where we can return to for wisdom too. Have I said enough about the love? There's more. <laughs> There's always more love. There's always more love. And the way you've baked that in too, in the sense of sovereignty itself, I'm sure we'll get into all the ways in which that's become such a tricky word, but that sense of returning to its original magic 
and also owning its original difficulty. As you say, that it's seldom earned, but through battle and conflict. And yet then it can end up in that sense of beauty and nurturance. And so it's always the all has always been in sovereignty because it's the essence of life on this earth. It's the essence of figuring out how to be human in the more than human world. No one ever said it was going to be easy. No, I don't know why we do that. We think it can be easy. And yes, I do think it can be easy too. I think that's important, but I think it's, it's in the reclamation of the all is actually where we're at on our planet right now and Mm. where I think that's where some of the suffering can come or the how it's not so easy because we've learned a particular way of separation and fragmentation that has come with that more patriarchal worldview and patriarchal mindset and what and the conditioning we've all grown up with and lived with for thousands of years. And when I talk about patriarchy, I like to use Carol Gilligan's definition of the patriarchy, which is a way of living that privileges some men over other men, and which means white men over black, straight men over gay, all religions over other religions, some castes over others, and all men over women. So I find that that's that encompasses a definition that really feels like I can sit into. And I feel that a lot of that story talks about like Uki's reign, where the patriarchal order is actually the order of society, where there's so much there of that domination mindset. So then I think that the sovereignty piece comes in and we have a chance with Niall's reign that there's a new order coming in. That's my sense. And that's what I feel where we're at right now, where the patriarchal order, as you say, or as we said just there, it just it separates, it fragments, it splits human from divine. It splits masculine and feminine. It splits spirituality and science and so many other things. And it's now, can we reweave them back together in this new order? That And that's, as you say, like the basis of sovereignty. And I love that definition of patriarchy because it reminds us that really everyone suffers in this system. And of course, you might say there's those few lads at the top who've come to the tip of the top of being white and the right religion and the right this and the right that, maybe perhaps on the right, if you're looking at American politics. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. we're all suffering in a system that forces some people to be less than than others. And it's not just if we fall into that sense of, oh, men versus women, we're falling into an old trap that was only just part of the process of getting to, no, feminism always was meant to be about the all because patriarchy affects the all at every level. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. It does. And we're all victims of it. Mm. Everybody as a result. So, I, yeah, I really hear that beauty in that, the one up and the one down, how that just has us all suffering, really, mm-hmm. unconsciously or consciously. Yeah. So I want to stick with your reading of this story because it just has really awoken something in me that's kind of ancient and new at the same time. 
when we spoke before, I, I have worked with this story myself, but I'm not sure I told you this. The version that I tend to work with, if there's a sense of picking sides, it's that Monkfin came to me and said, I need you to tell my story. And so I've told uh-huh. a version. It's actually in the second episode of season one of this podcast, because it was Monkfin who told me, I need you to tell my story and you should tell some others as well. And so it's just for me sitting here in this remarkable sense of remembering, right, the Nile story in my mind is the Monkfin story, but it was actually because of that sense of Yoki's patriarchal reign and the way of being mm-hmm. that I was really moved. Do you know Gerard O'Cruley's Book of the Kalyak? No, I don't. Oh, that sounds like I should know it. I'd love to know it. Yeah. I don't want to tell anyone that they should do anything, but yes, you should know this one. I think he yeah. was at <laughs> I think he was at chair of the UCC, uh, University College Cork Folklore Department. But his book on the Kalyak has this really interesting reading that says, and I think because he's looking at it as trying to in reclaiming a lot from the patriarchal lens in saying, yeah. oh, the sovereignty goddess, he didn't name her as Phleas. And he said she didn't have a name. What was it that an unnamed woman came and usurped Mungfin? And that became this really interesting doorway into saying, was Niall's PR team responsible for retelling the story and inserting a sovereignty goddess in order to get rid of a difficult woman? Oh, how interesting. And I think in in this world of the myth work that we do, neither version is true. It's just that sense of the facets of the diamond of saying, oh, I wonder, right? Could we look at it in all these different ways and bring our versions together and find the love and the struggle in all of the different pieces. And what I love about this is that to me is what true sovereignty is. And we can get into that in a little while about that, being able to look at all perspectives yes. and facets. And actually, Dahio Hogan, who was one of my professors in UCD, I didn't hear him say this, but I heard somebody say this about that. He said, and I think this is an important piece, too, in terms of bringing back the all. He said that what's interesting and curious is that for years, the king cycle of which this Nile of the Nine Hostages from, we had very few king stories. And he thought it was curious. In ancient times, there were much more king stories told. But it's funny that a country that has been oppressed and has had a bit difficult relationship with its neighbor and kings in in its neighboring country, that we would actually not tell the king's story. So I think that's another interesting perspective and facet of that diamond looking at, okay, well, how have we as a culture, what are we leaving out and can we bring it all in? So I think that's incredible. Yes. Yeah. What's revealed in the silences. And I think that's so much of the work for us right now. And that's what we do intuitively and spiritually in concert with what we can figure out from our academics and scholarship. And what I know of your work, I think you really marry those, again, think of sacred marriages, Mm. of these different ways of knowing how do we root it into the written record and also be touched by the folklore and be touched by what you know in your bones and what comes through. Yeah. Yeah. And leave it open also for the retelling too. Yeah. I really do love that idea of 
that these have all been retold and the questioning of that. And then, as you say, the silence, it's like, what's in the silences that are not being said? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why in my telling of the story, what do you do with that? The character of Karen is she's so compelling and you offer her such space to be mother and to be able to take that space next to her lover and next to her son and be, you know, wear that purple gown again, to wear the purple robe and be really given the honor and respect that she deserved as an enslaved person, as a woman, as a mother. And what becomes available to us when we can start giving space, if not a voice, for people who've been kind of a stock character who, oh, right, that was Niall's mom. And then we move on. You gave her that real home in your story. Good. I didn't I didn't consciously do that. But like uh, like that, I was also very aware of Monkfen, like you were. It's interesting as I started to write the story and it was a mixture of stories that I'd heard and from bard mythologies, the great bard mm. mythologies. And then the description of the crone I took from Tom Pete Cross's 1936. I wanted to really keep that in because mm-hmm. I thought his description was so kind of vivid. But one of the things that really struck me the first time I heard this was the relationship between the women. Because I think in that patriarchal reign, women were pitted against each other, as we have been. And this feminine shadow that I see all the time, I mean, I see it in me. I see it, it, it rises up in me. I see it between us in this old way of, you know, we were had to be chosen in order to be powerful. And so Monkvin had been chosen, became queen, and she got her power through that alliance. And then when somebody new comes in and is chosen and her son's destiny and her destiny, therefore, is at risk, she starts to really be conscious of the pecking order, which I think, as that's the feminine shadow around pecking order, a lot of us were actually slightly oppressing each other in order to maybe not so slightly or not so implicitly but it may be explicitly in times but the tendency is for this what happens to women's relationships when actually they are they're one down to the higher power mm-hmm. and then they they start to create i think much more silent hierarchies they i don't why should i say they we right. because i include myself in yes. that i've seen myself i've heard myself i have felt myself really being Mung Finn at times mm-hmm. and also being Karen at times. Right. And that's, I'm so curious about that relationship. We speak of the magic of mythology here, but there's also the sense of the darkness of myth. And it's the myth of scarcity, I think, that says, well, and often it's been because there's been a truth. There is one seat at the table for women. There's one seat at the table for a person, for a minority. There's one seat at the table for someone who's other than the usual power brokers, but then it starts to create these inner mythic shadows that says it's so scarce. There's one spot for me. And it's so antithetical to the sense of, we know this work of being in the feminine is about abundance and fertility and growth and expansiveness. Oh, how all the ways we get caged in without even realizing and replicate it, replicate the cage for others. Yeah, and it's about really allowing that, which is the feminine, the great compassion of the feminine, to allow that, to see it in ourselves, to see it and to 
allow it and forgive it and know that it's changing because we're seeing it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're in the change. We're part of the change. We need to be changed. It's all of the above again, to use that, that three letter word that seems to be key for our conversation. The all. Yeah. <laughs> the all, the whole, the all. Yeah. 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 The perfection, this perfection that we're all seeking is, is that has cut off just like the crone in the story is seen as bad, ugly, disgusting, wouldn't go near her. You know, no way am I going to kiss her. No way am I, even if I'm like dying with thirst, I prefer to die with thirst than kiss her. That is seen as bad, awful, undesirable. And then this only beauty and youth and our beauty is youth and vitality and summer and all of the things that our society is so obsessed with and addicted to. So, yeah. I know you and I want to talk a bit about that addiction to the light, but I feel it's important to also note in the same way that you said, you know, you've had Mungfin and Karen in you. I think we all, I know I will also claim like, and yes, I think we've also had the hag and Phleas in us as well, that this story gives us so many of these different ways that we have seen ourselves and have been seen from the outside. And I mean, I always love me a good hag. You know, I want to say that there's a lot of magic in her, even in her repulsiveness. I'm like, I want to claim some of that too, because she's wildness and untamed and lives outside of the rules, right? She has so much power. She has equal power. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of honoring the the full feminine, that she has Mm -hmm. part of the power, which is absolute primal deep in the earth, dark, destructive, decay, all of that has so much power. But again, our, it's in us, yes, but it's denied in us so often. And it's denied because we're over-domesticated and we have lost mm-hmm. our connection to the depths and to the darkness and to the dirt and to the ugly. You know, we think things are ugly or we say ugly versus beautiful, but actually sometimes... Mm-hmm the ugly, destructive decay that we shun so much. I mean, I can feel it in myself. You know, you just kind of, you can just turn, easily turn away from. It's actually to be embraced is it comes into the fullness of of the cycle of life, birth, death, rebirth, which Mm -hmm. we don't really understand in our current culture how important that last piece is of the work of the crone, the energy of the crone of the Kalyak to bring us across into the darkness, into owning death before we die, so we can live much more fully, owning the part of destruction in our lives, how important it is that things fall apart, how important it is to allow ourselves to be messy and chaotic and all over the place and torn apart and all of that in order for you us to emerge and that's evolution it's growth and evolution and it's messy and it's ugly and it's unruly and untamed and most of us are not really prepared to let the world see us like that or even to experience ourselves we will do everything we can to stay on the Everything looks 
elegant and we've nailed everything and we know everything and we've got it sorted and we've got it in control and look at me and I'm okay and don't ever look at my the fact that I can be on the ground in a heap in a mess I don't know with my life falling apart but that's the power there's such a power in that it's deeply uncomfortable it's immensely Mm -hmm. excruciating in those moments but if we reclaim that part and we know that she holds that piece of that way for way into the next new evolution of us that something Mm -hmm. has to die something has to fall apart that the mess has to happen that the disillusion has to happen in order for something new to emerge like the green shoots in springtime then we start to recognize her power and rather than being disgusted and avoiding it it's not easy but rather than that we start to embrace this primal existential part of us then that is the power that's the power of owning that part of the feminine cycle, the dark feminine that has been so denied in our culture. The power is there. And Mm. yeah, it's like, oh my God, I can feel her even here as I talk. Oh, and you know, in a funny way, that's the power that brought you and I together in its sense, because I had been aware of your beautiful work with the Celtic wheel and many mutual acquaintances had mentioned your name to me several times. But the day that I connected with you, of all things, was when you were on Instagram with a video in which you really just claimed you were tired. You really claimed that sense of having reached some sort of wasteland. I'm not sure if you use that language, but that was kind of how I was interpreted of saying, you know, you'd gone to the edge of how far you could carry that spark of life. And it was time for you to lie down and to rest, you know, to become, to be the compost heap rather than the brand new garden constantly spurting up new life. And that was a moment, I think, for you, of real just vulnerability and truth telling. But that was the place where connection was for me and saying, oh, I see her in that. That was the maybe that was just the essence and the vibration of where I was in that moment. But that there's so much that's still fertile, even in those moments of saying, I can't right now, because of course the death follows the rebirth. But sometimes here's the thing that I think I've noticed when we use birth, death, mm-hmm. rebirth. We use that in this set phrase. And I know. in some cases we get it. And in other times we use it as this like do 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 do. And we kind of just spin it out because of modern culture and all the sound bites of things. But I think sometimes we forget that sense of like the death really has to be a true setting down, an ending of something. And it isn't about setting conscious space for the rebirth, but it's also that sense of trusting that it will come after. We can't rush the phase and the stage, but it is that sense of saying, the cycles do prove to us in Mother Earth's constant moving, in the sense of our stories that we go back to in mythology, in our own lived lives, the rebirth does follow the death, but man, we got to be in the death first and allow it not just to be the step we do on Sunday because we have the day off. Oh my God, I couldn't agree more. Thousand 
hands applauding you because it's so true and it's so hard to get Marissa too it's so hard to get that I mean I've only got the I've only lived no I haven't lived into but I've only got that birth death rebirth truly fully in the last two years and I've been doing the Celtic wheel Mm. for 12 years so even 10 years of knowing it of knowing it you know in my intellectual way I, I knew it seeing it in the seasons but actually truly it landed in in the last two years and I think maybe it's interesting I've just come back from four days with my friends who I've had for 37 years who are in college with me six of us we used to call ourselves the core group <laughs> so we go back a long time and we we were away together this week just for a couple of days and um, we do this once a year for the last couple of years and I was feeling really really in a in a difficult place when I met them all we were over in Portugal we were having a lovely time together but I just felt so separate from them because I've been in a bit of a process mm-hmm. in this death process of a couple of things coming my way and and usually with these friends, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be very light and we'd have good fun and there's de- there's depth there. But on day two, I just couldn't hold it anymore. I had to sit with them and very unelegantly and very messily, it wasn't planned. I just broke down and told them I'm in a really hard place and I mm. there's things that are are breaking down in me and around me. And it was so hard and difficult but it was so to finally in that dynamic of six women to actually own my helplessness and I've never done that I've always been the one you know sparky up and around because they knew me in college this is who they knew and I've always nailed it I always knew where to go what to do and here I just completely broke down and mm. I just felt so, I felt a lot of even shame after it for a little while, but it, I knew it was so, it came from such a deep place. I have to share this with these women. And it was pure vulnerability. And I think helplessness is the most important thing because I think as women, we tend, or as, as women of the 21st century, we tend not ever want to be in the helpless place, never to own the helplessness. And that to me is death. That to me is darkness. That to me is I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm really confused right now. I my life is a bit of a mess in places. And to me, for me to actually reveal that to these other five women who I love and adore, but I was a, would never have shown them before. That's the work of mm. the Kalyuk and of the Celtic wheel working me over and over for 12 years. Saying, mm. no matter where you are in your life or who you're with, you have got to be true to you. And that's that takes a lot of depth at times. Mm. But the beautiful intimacy that happened because of that moment between us, suddenly things got really real. And we dropped into this beautiful place together and they were able to hold me. Oh, 
Mari, thank you for trusting this space with the story of your story. And so elegantly and yet beautifully and messily and in a deeply human way, reminding us that, you know, sovereignty is not about being the queen boss lady and having it all together and shining like the brightest star in, in the sky. Instead, it's about the fullness of saying, I'm going through the entire process and I claim it and know I need to be in all of these spaces. And of course, we know that ripples forth as leaders, as people who speak about these things, but also just the primacy and importance of claiming your own process and being in it and saying, the work that I do in the world works on me. And sometimes it's really inconvenient. It doesn't fit the marketing cycle. It doesn't fit the vacation no. cycle, the vacation plans. <laughs> what happens when more of us are uh, allow ourselves to be in that full sovereign space? So thank you for, for offering us room to really to explore this with you. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it wasn't easy and it's still not easy, but it's it's the only way. It's the only way. So I love that in a conversation in which we're really celebrating the union of goddess and king and, you know, coming to that space of love and Phileas really emerging in her beauty and people coming together and the world being healed to some degree, we're also really lingering in all the other shades and shadows of the story. Mm. Are there any other pieces of your tale you want to explore? Well, I, I love... I love a couple of things like I love a repeating pattern that I, you see in myth and in the Celtic tradition anyway, which is the true king or the healthy masculine, as I would say, often has to go into hiding and be secretly trained. And I would always feel it's well, they're secretly trained in the other world. We have it in Christ in the Christian story. We have it in Lou and I love that, you know, so he's he's taken out. Niall is taken out as a baby. He has to be kept secretly and he's raised by a seer poet, which who who knows the other ways of knowing that silver branch perception. So he comes back into the order of living that's that is as to be will be disrupted by his reign. But he comes back with that wisdom, that other way of knowing and the depths. So I love that as one of the threads in the story. I also love the the wells and the water and the feminine. I just love that the well uh, comes from the mother. Karen is having to carry the water from the well in a, as a burden up and down the hill. And then that the all the sons of Uki are so thirsty for water, which to me is the thirst for the feminine. And then they go to the well and the Kalyuk is, is there. So the women and the wells, which we know, of course, are like any of the great bodies of water, so sacred and sacred portals to the other world and to wisdom and to the feminine. I love that. And I think it's important to say, because I, I see it so often with in mythology and in in, in this world of spirituality, that, that when I talk about the feminine and masculine, I'm talking about forces, archetypal forces or principles in nature and the cosmos and in each of us sentient beings right. that are in everyone, no matter what you identify. Mm -hmm. So 
often, you know, we t- we read these myths and it's men kings and women queens and goddesses and it's like, oh my God, we mix them all up. But they're just archetypal symbols of, for me, that's how I read them, of the feminine and the masculine. And so I think that's important to say. Absolutely. In turn, and then I, I work, I use those as, work with them how am I and how are they those forces showing up in me and how am I mediating them and working with them and playing with them so in the most generative way that I can I so appreciate you saying that because this in this moment of knowing that gender as spectrum gender and all these different expressions all these really important ways especially our children are showing us like hey these old binaries don't work for us anymore there's certain moments I myself am saying, how how am I going back to the sovereignty myth that feels so heteronormative, that feels so, this is the work of the woman with the cup and this is the work of the man with the sword. I just so appreciate you saying that, which I know in my bones too, and how it's part of the work of saying, yes, these are the ancient sources and the ancient elements, and they're all meant to be accessed by all of us in new ways, because the thing that you mentioned about the power of apprenticeship for the young, healthy masculine, surely he was taught in all of these different ways in the other world. It wasn't just like going to the boys' school and learning discipline. It was instead this rich, full experience of the all in the natural world, which gives us the all in in the, just the way that animals and plants express themselves, et cetera. But and also in that yeah. wide spiritual spectrum that we know these stories and these ways of being and believing and always have had embodied within them. Yeah. The other thing, or I feel quite strongly because I've really investigated this myself and questioned myself, the feminine and masculine, yes, they're binary, but sometimes it's really important in a very complex world to pull out simplicity and binary polarities, because we live in a dualistic world, it's really useful to break it down and divide into two or more simplicity in order then to be able to go back into the world of complexity with a lot more integration within ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's why I really did question for a long time, like you, like, what am I doing this, this? the most wise thing to do in a world that is more complicated in terms of gender. But actually there's, it's a yes, it's a both and. It's like, yes, we have in a complicated, complex, beautiful, differentiating world. And then we have these two forces that are primal also. And we can return to those and use that returning and wisdom we get from returning to enter back into the more complex world. A little, I certainly feel like I'm a little bit more or a lot more able to be in the complexity because of that. Okay, I can I can really be in that complexity because I have a better sense of knowing each of these more deeply. It's like being able to really understand the dawn and the dusk because we've let ourselves be in the fullness of the night and the day. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. How you're, how you say it so beautifully. That's so gorgeous. And it reminds me of what you were saying before. <laughs> we're saying, you know, when I was that sense of sovereignty is not a simple thing. It takes its work. It takes, it's difficult. And you said, you're right. And it's also easy. 
And I think it's that same energy of saying these things are, we live in an immensely complex, difficult world. And yet, what if everything wasn't always struggle and too hard and too heavy because we also live in a world of light? Yeah. Or what if we live in a world of light and of darkness, right. of pain and suffer, pain and joy? Yes. And actually, the suffering, it comes because we decide one is good and one is bad. It's actually all aliveness. Yes. Like the beauty and the magnificence of going out and seeing something or experiencing a moment of beauty like I did with those women in my life was there but so was the pain of oh my god how do I how who am I with these women if I'm falling apart and it's all aliveness Mm. and what if the suffering comes because we think one is good and one is bad one is ugly and one is beautiful one is is right and one is wrong I to me it's like the all comes even though it's much harder to sit in the utter discomfort of feeling like you don't know who you are mm. it's much easier to be skipping around Portugal in your little dress and you're out for the night and leading the pack of women going I know where to go I know what to do mm. it's much easier but I just feel this is a really important piece that we're learning in this as we evolve in the new age of Aquarius you know as we ascend and our consciousness shifts and grows and expands to include the all. Oh, Mari, I don't know why. And yet I know exactly why there's just tears in my eyes. As we come to the close of this conversation, it feels like such a new beginning and a new opening. I'm so grateful for this journey with you. And I hope I will have you on again. We can do this another time. I would love that. I would love that. I think there's one thing I'd love to add if I can. I mean, yeah, just oh. I just feel like one of the things you said earlier was that sovereignty is a word that's kind of uh, I can't mm. remember what you said. It was like a, a word that's prickly or challenging. And I feel when a word becomes challenging. It means that it's an invitation. Something wants to be evolved. The conflict within us or between us with a word means there's something new wants to take, mm. wants to come to evolve. We need to. So I feel the whole definition of sovereignty is ready to be evolved by our myths and by our experiences. And I think that's a really important, an important invitation of now for us to move from this feeling that sovereignty is about rigid. My truth is better than your truth. My truth is, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. And that it's mm-hmm. time to look at sovereignty, at the word and, and evolve it. It's very, I'm excited about that. Oh, Mari, thank you for, for landing us there and making sure we brought attention to that. I will speak just purely from my, my own self. You, as you know, I've worked with this word for a long time. I have a I have a book with the yes. word right there in very large print on its cover. <laughs> and I chose the knot. The book, my book is called The Sovereignty Knot. Mm. When sovereignty felt too much to bear, I chose not work instead. Mm-hmm. And so having you here really unifying this sense of bringing sovereignty to the knot work is such an immense gift and an immense personal invitation that, of course, 
the joy and the the privilege of this medium is we get to include others with us in this journey. But I've been so grateful to people like you who've brought that over the last few years, but who knows what the next chapter will bring. So thank you for embodying sovereignty so beautifully, sharing its story. Where else can people find you and follow your work and get deeper into your perspectives on sovereignty and the Celtic wheel and the rest of your magic? Well, you can find me on marykennedy.com. That's Mary with an I, no E, so M-A-R-I. That's where you can find me. I'm on Instagram at Mary Kennedy Wisdom and a little and on YouTube, yeah, and Facebook, yeah, the usual, the usual places, yeah. But you take people to such unusual places in the usual places, and that's part of your magic. So thank you. Well, that's our work, right? Or or play. Let's say it's our play. Yeah, all of the above. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Marissa. It's been a joy. And I really do hope this is a prod for you to get back into sovereignty and help us all start to redefine it and reimagine it and evolve it. Yeah. Thank you. Mila Bukis Mari, thank you so much. Falcha. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.